Good morning. Thank God we have uh, another opportunity to worship Him. Now, with regards to the EOGM, uh, they are actually you have received the proxy form, and we encourage you to fill in because if you don't fill in and you turn up, uh, that means uh, you are actually uh, giving up the right to vote. But it also means that actually it lowers our approval rate. Okay, so. Uh, there are two items on it. First is the EOGM uh, is on the draft constitution, and I'm sure you're all aware of it. The other item is a request to revise our budget by 60,000. Uh, it is for our 60th anniversary luncheon. Last year when we budgeted, we didn't expect uh, the COVID situation to open up, so we didn't budget for the lunch. And you know, 60,000 sounds a lot, but it's actually similar to our 50th anniversary amount. So you think of 10 years of inflation, actually we didn't increase the amount. In, in fact, we decreased. Okay, it's a luncheon for 800 to 1,000 people. Uh, but more importantly, we felt like after three years of pandemic, it's a good opportunity for the whole church, uh, English, Chinese, Cantonese, together, together uh, to celebrate. And we do this only once every 10 years, so we do hope that you can approve the revised budget. I uh, will continue our series through the book of James, titled The Marks of, a Spirit, of Spiritual Maturity. Last week you saw, you saw uh, it means to how we face trials. Today we'll talk about how we face the rich and poor. Uh, next week, James 3, we'll talk about tongues and our thoughts. And then James 4 will be on conflicts and pride. Finally, sufficiency and suffering. And then prayer and praise. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we commit um, this time to you. Pray for Holy Spirit to convict our hearts to see Christ lifted up and you glorified. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you bear to eat the carcass of your pet dog instead of burying it? This was the decision Eugene Wee had to make when he was serving amongst the Hmong people in northern Thailand. You see, when he was working as a public servant, the Lord stirred in his heart how can I live out my faith practically? How can I give practical help with people in need? And so eventually he started this organization called Radion. He said that day, his dog uh, was hit by a truck. And the villagers were all looking, wondering who will claim the carcass. Because if no one did, they would. It's just in the midst of all the struggles, you know, when he started Radion, is to give practical help to the mar marginalized communities and eventually led him to the Hmong people in northern Thailand. So his organization provides shelter for the poor to rescue children who are trapped in vice and drugs and to provide uh, protection for women who are facing domestic abuse. He met many challenges, financial ones, emotional ones. He says the most difficult one was, was of course the decision to eat his own pet. He said, had I buried the dog, and the neighbors found out it would be very offensive to them. And I can't bear the thought of strangers eating my pet. And so the only culturally acceptable option was to eat it myself. You know, when he was working, the Lord stirred in his heart. He thought, one day I'll stand before my maker. What am I going to say? Lord, I've spent my life pursuing all the glitter of this world. What is on God's heart? And eventually, he started radio because he believed the marginalized people is what is on God's heart. Now what about us? Will we be willing to leave our comfort zones, our comfortable jobs to help the marginalized? 
And it's not all just going overseas, it's all about locally. Has it ever crossed your mind? Or are we just too busy with our own lives to ever think about people in need, about the marginalized communities? And I believe through the pandemic, that is what the Lord has shown us, right? There are such communities in our, our country, the migrants, the homeless. And I thank God through the S3P uh, ministry we had at that time. We realized that, you know, the homeless people, they're exactly like us. Question is, how do we look at people with needs? Or maybe a more a easier question to answer. Have you deliberately and intentionally invest your life or help somebody who has no way of reciprocating, of giving back to you? You see, we know in our faith, in our Christian faith, faith alone saves. But we know faith that saves is not alone. And what does that mean? We know we are accepted and saved by God, not because we do good, not because we're compassionate, not because of our morality, but because of what Jesus has done. That is why we are saved by faith alone. But we are truly saved. That ought to have some responses. And so this is what I want us to think about today. How do we deal with the rich and the poor? And in James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, we will see what is true religion. Verse 1 to 13, what is true religion? Verse 14 to 26, what does the gospel say about true religion? And then finally, how do we respond to true religion? Now why do I use this word true religion? Because of James 1. James 1 verse 1 to 25, we saw last week that it deals with how we face trials. You think it to the end and we can rejoice because we know God is involved. And verse 26, 27, it says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, true religion, and yet does not burden his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion, mature faith in the sight of our God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a key verse in the book because in chapter 3, it deals with burdening of the tongue, how we deal with our tongue and our thoughts. Because what we say comes from our thoughts. In chapter 2, today we'll see visiting widows and orphans. How do you deal with people who are marginalized? Chapter 4 talks about submitting contrition um, to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And then chapter 5, usually chapter 5, uh, the end of a, a, a letter in a Greek epistle is a prayer. And so Paul, uh, not Paul, James extends this section on prayer to talk about prayer and praise as a community. So this is a key verse of the whole book uh, to understand what is he really getting at. Even though when we read James, it seems like it's uh, topics all over the place, but it's not. So look, let's look at chapter 2. What is true religion? What is a mature faith? It is to pour our lives to those who cannot repay us. My brother, br- my brethren, do not hold your faith. <laughs> okay. I'll press it myself. Okay, never mind. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. This is what personal favoritism means to receive face. They made up this Greek word because it was translated from the Hebrew. To receive face. What does it mean to receive face? It is not to treat people according to their appearance. And so he explains, he says, If a man comes into an assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Gold ring literally means gold finger. Means it's not just appearance, but really his status, his background, his abilities. Who is this person? If such a person comes in, 
You pay special attention to one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You know, this is the only place in the Bible that talks about the ministry of ushering. You see, aren't you thankful enough for our ushers? Every morning you come on Sunday, you see people smiling at you, waving at you. Can you imagine if in the morning you, you come and you look at my black face and I'm standing there looking at you? So I'm always thankful for our ushers. Alright? And what does it say? Do we spend pay special attention to people who drive a different car, who dress a different way. But it's more than just how we value a person. Based on their appearance, based on who they are. James is dealing with the whole Roman system, patronage system. You see, when they needed to get something done, they will approach someone influential. The person will help you, but then you are in, um, you owe that person to re- you need to respond or reciprocate. And that is why in Luke, Jesus said to his disciples, so trying to fight who is going to sit on his left and right side, he says, the kings of the Gentiles, the Romans, lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. The benefactors, they, they help you, and so you owe them your loyalty. You owe them favors. And so the whole society is like that. When you do good, you expect it to be reciprocated. Jesus talks about it. When you invite someone over for a banquet, you expect to be invited back. And so for us, the question is this. It's not just do we value someone based upon their jobs or abilities, but do we intentionally look out for people to help that cannot reciprocate? That we do good for someone simply because of that person, because, not because that person can, re- can give you back, can re- return the favor. Do we do that in your life? See, why do we do this? James gives us three reasons why we should not discriminate. Say, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Those who are poor, they have nothing to rely on but to rely on God. And so the Beatitudes tells us that they are those who inherit the kingdom of God. Secondly, but you have dishonored the poor man. It's not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. Last week when I said about the trials they were facing, they were being persecuted for their faith because the rich people were dragging them to court. Do, not, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you are called? Do they not persecute you because of Christ? So why are you pandering to them? Thirdly, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What is this whole section about? He's saying at the heart of the law, it is about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about valuing somebody because we are all made in the image of God equally. There's no difference between the rich and the poor. We don't value someone based on their backgrounds or their abilities. And then he goes on to say, see, you think you keep the law, right? Because remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. You keep your Sabbath. Maybe you, you, know, you follow some of the rules and you think you're religious. But how do you view people? 
If you treat people with partiality, you are not obeying the law as a whole. Now, again, I need to remind us, it doesn't mean that there's no difference between all the different sins, right? Like if you kill someone and you lie, that there's no difference. From human's point of view, there is a difference. Right? That's why the law itself, it gives different punishment or um, repay, yeah, dif- for different uh, acts of sin or transgression, they have different way of repaying. So there is a difference. All right? But when we look at it from God's point of view, from God's perfection, then of course there's no difference. As long as we are not perfect, from God's point of view, we're sinners. So what James is saying is this, if you look from God's point of view, you think you're religious by doing, keeping the Sabbath and doing all these external rites. But how do you view other people? And so friends, that's the question we need to ask. See, if we don't believe in God, then our existence here is just by accident, right? And so, how do you value somebody? Well, based on their contributions. And so the whole Roman, Roman patronage system makes sense. You know, I value you because you can do me good. I value you because you are, you are, you are CEO or because you are MP. You are somebody. But James is telling us, because we value one another because we are made in the image of God, and hence, there should not be a difference. Now, you know, Nietzsche, the German philosopher, understands this. And so he says, David Bentley sort of summarizes his teaching. He says, the greatest skeptic of Christianity was Friedrich Nietzsche. He had enough sense of the past to understand the cultural crisis that a fading Christian faith would bring about. In the 19th century, he started the God is dead movement. And he says, God is dead, but I'm not happy. Because he knows the Western virtues are built upon a foundation of the Christian faith. So he understands this. He also had a good manners to despise Christianity in great part for what it actually was. He despised it for his devotion to an ethic of compassion. So on one hand, he doesn't like the idea that there's no God because he believes that in this way we cannot maintain the virtues of our society. On the other hand, he despises Christianity because he says, precisely because of the teaching like in James, to have compassion against the poor, against the helpless, against the powerless. It says it makes the Western society weak. He hated Christianity principally on account of its enfeebling solicitude for the weak and the outcast. And he knew Western civilization had gotten this idea of the importance of caring for the weak and the downcast from Christianity. And so friends, if we don't believe in God, but on the other hand, we are really fervent about issues of social justice. We feel we must help the poor and the abused. The question is, we must ask why. What is your basis? If you do not believe in God, we are just a product of an accident. There's no reason for us to fight for the poor and the needy because they deserve it. However, on the other hand, if we believe in God, if we believe everyone is equal because we're made in the image of God, then we need to respond. And so we need to ask, ask ourselves, we believe God exists, we are Christians. How then do we invest our lives in the marginalized communities? Has that thought ever crossed our, your minds? Or have you ever deliberately helped somebody that you know has no way of repaying you? That is the question we need to ask. And in the process of doing it, we need to be aware of our own attitudes. In the next verse, James, in verse 12 says, So speak 
and so act. He says, if you understand, you know, God chose the poor. If you understand that the law of God says that when you love uh, each other as your, others as yourself because we are made equally in the image of God, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Eventually, when we help others, it's not from a position of superiority, but a position of mercy. What is our attitude? Calvin Miller is a well-known theologian and pastor. He wrote about a time when he was young. He says he came from a poor family. So the neighboring churches would visit his mom and give them food baskets. But he said, you know, as children, we would never worship at those churches. Why would we go to a place to worship where the people look down on us? He says there's something grandiose about giving a beggar a dime, but there's nothing grandiose about receiving it. He says, I think my mom received those food baskets with this spirit. It was shameful. But yet the shame was nothing compared to the joy when she thinks about the food basket filling the stomach of her children. But she knows that when those churches give the food basket, they have two different attitudes. To their fellow church members, they will give the food baskets with a hallmark get well card. They will never ask them, are you born again? But when they give the food basket to us, the poor, it always comes with a question, are you born again? And then finally he says, it is embarrassing to have to declare Christ every time we receive food. And I think what he says uh, resonates with what James is saying. We want to help the marginalized community, but we don't do it out of a position of superiority. We have to be aware of our attitude. How are we doing it? And so what is the mark of a mature faith? What is true religion? It says, it's to pour our lives to those who cannot pay. And so we talk about the marginalized, the communities that people look down on, the poor, the weak. Who are these people? It's us. It's not someone else. It's each one of us. We get that point of view when we understand the gospel. And so the second question we have to ask is, what does the gospel say about true religion? It says, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Let me explain. James goes on to say, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being it by itself. This whole issue of faith, about faith and works, what is it about? It is about helping those with needs. And hence, it links verses 14 to 26 to the preceding text about how we view other people. Do we treat the rich and poor differently? It has got to do with our understanding of the gospel. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. He goes on to say, he uses a rhetorical device called a diatribe, like having a conversation. He says, if someone may well say, if you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works, I will show you my faith by my works. He said, you believe in God, good. You believe that God is one, you do well. 
the demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He's saying faith is not just an intellectual assent. I believe that God exists. I believe that God is love. The devil also believes. Even he believed more than you, you know? But is he saved? No. So what is faith that saves? It is faith with works. What is works? It is in this context how we respond to the people who have needs, the marginalized communities. So we look at the train of thought, okay? First, it begins with what good is faith without works? Then you say, he says, you have faith without works, I have faith with works. Then finally, verse 20 to 26, the book ends. Verse 20, 26, it repeats this, faith without works is useless. In between, he brought out two examples, Abraham and Rahab. So if you look at the whole section, the theme is clear, right? The big idea is clear. Faith, true faith that saves is not alone. It has works. The works is how we respond to people with needs. And thus, verse 14 to 26 is linked with verse 1 to 13. The entire James chapter 2 talks about the same big idea. How do you value another human being? Do you treat them with partiality? And in that context, how do you respond to the people with needs? Now, verse 21-23 talks about Abraham, so let's look, look at it. Was Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. James referred back to the time when Abraham sacrificed Isaac and his act of obedience to God proved his faith in God. And so today we say, I believe you are saved because you believe in Christ. Now we prove that faith from a change in our lives. We've works. Interestingly, in Romans 4, Paul used the same example. But Paul's point is, faith alone saves. How are we saved? Simply by faith. Here he says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? What about Abraham? He says, if, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, we are saved simply by faith. If we can add to that salvation, if we can save ourselves, then we can boast, but none of us can boast before a perfect God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and he was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul, interestingly, used the same example, Abraham, and then later he also used the example of Rahab to say that we are only saved by faith alone. And James used the same example. So we have to ask, are they contradicting one another? Are they contradicting? We put the two texts side by side. The green parts are what is similar, but what is different is the one highlighted in red. It says, because of the works, faith was perfected. You see, when Paul talks about faith that saved, righteousness, he says it's declared righteousness, means you're justified. Declared, you are not righteous, you are declared righteous because you trusted in Jesus. But James talks about how do you prove it? How, you, how do you demonstrate it? How your faith was perfected, was matured, is by your works. So really, they are not in contradiction. They are talking about two sides of the same coin. And why do I spend such a long time talking about this? Because this is important. 
You know, Martin Luther started the Reformation, and hence we have our church today, because he believed they were saved by faith and faith alone. At the same time, Martin Luther wanted to throw out the book of James. He says, you should not belong in the Bible because it talks about works. But when we put them together, we realize that they're really, James is talking about vindication of your faith, proving it. Paul was talking about justification. Okay, but after all this mumbo-jumbo and all these things about faith alone, safe, safe, faith that safe is not alone, what is the main point? Okay, we don't want to get caught up with all the theological discussion which is important. The main point goes back to this. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what is the use of that? Don't get caught up by all the theological discussion. Don't use it as an excuse. You know that's exactly what a Samaritan woman by the well did, right? Jesus talked to her about her sin and she says, oh, you know, I, I know we worship on one this hill and that hill, you know. She tries to defer the personal question of sin into a theological discussion. Let's not get too caught up about faith that saves, saves that faith, okay? We go back to the main point. The point is this. How do you respond to people in needs? How do you value somebody? You ask yourself in the heart of hearts, you know, somebody, an MP, a CEO stands before you. Do you treat them differently because of who they are. Now, I'm not saying we don't respect the people for what they have done. We do. But in the heart of hearts, our motivation of what we do, and we go a step further to ask, have you helped someone who has no way of repaying you? You're doing good simply because you know as a Christian that is what you do and not because you want to get something out of that person. Not because you want a favor from that person. In the pastor's voice, we shared, right? Uh, in the CPR, of course, CPR, we have more room to share more. So I wish, you know, you all were there to hear the stories for yourself. I want to encourage you all again to come for our monthly prayer meeting, especially our CPR in October. But in the CPR last week, Pastor Bell shared about our mentoring ministry and some of the people we have come in contact with. We don't want just to go over to our community and knock their doors a few times a year. We moved it low uh, to 3 p.m. later in the afternoon and not like in the past right after worship also because we don't want just people to come out of convenience. We hope that people will come again and again are those who are willing to come at that date, at that slot and so that you can always visit the same household. But more so, we don't just want to cross over and knock their doors a few times a year. We want to get into their lives. And so that is our prayer and, and we thank God that through the mentoring ministries, in the secondary schools, we get to know some of these young people. As you approve the budget to use some of our surpluses from last year to bless them, it's not just blessing them for their physical needs, but really having the opportunity to testify about God. And it's an encouragement when we see them begin to respond positively to the faith. A while ago, I got a picture. A young lady and our deaconess, uh, with two older couple. I recognize the older couple. They are from our Red Hill Ministries that we have done over 20 years, all these years, okay, and they attend Chinese worship. So the, the girl, the young girl, was the granddaughter. She had just graduated and gotten her first paycheck and she wanted to treat our deaconess uh, to lunch, to thank her and to thank our church for investing in their family. And that brings me a smile because, you see, the gospel didn't just save the old couple. Save the next generation and the next generation, their granddaughter. It saved 
the eternal destiny of this soul one generation after another. And that's the privilege we have when we co-work with God in His kingdom. If someone with needs come into our need, what do you do? Zechariah 9.9 is a prophecy about the triumphal entry of Jesus. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. When Jesus entered Jerusalem in the final week, they quoted this verse. It was the apex of his ministry. People came to worship him, say Hosanna, and then they used a palm tree, and so today we have Palm Sunday, right? But at the apex of his ministry, Jesus was, what, 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 what did he say? Humble. He was riding a donkey, and even the donkey didn't belong to him. He had to go and borrow and steal from someone. The word humble, ani, is most commonly translated as poor. In this context, it's gentle. Messiah is poor. It says, foxes have holes, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's gentle. He's afflicted, sorrowful. When he saw Jerusalem, he wept. He took the sins of the world upon himself. This is our Messiah. See, what I'm trying to say is this. When we talk about the marginalized and the poor and the, commu- the people, the communities, that no one, that are despised, the little people, friends, we are talking about ourselves. Because that's how Jesus saw us. Scripture tells us Jesus gave up his riches of heaven to be poor so that by his poverty we may be rich. Not rich in material wealth, but rich because of our relationship with God. Then the question is, how then do we respond? See, there was a piano teacher. He wrote an article that was published in his local newspaper. He said, I had a student called Robbie who is 11 years old. Normally, I would prefer to accept students who are younger because they're easier to teach. But Robbie kept asking me to teach him and he was really hardworking. After months of teaching him, every time after he finished the lesson, he says, one day I hope my mother will be able to hear me perform. He says, I don't know his mother. I always see her from afar and she'll wave at me. But when Robbie says this, I cringe. Because after months of teaching him, he has not improved he gets his rhythm wrong. He plays the wrong notes. And I thought, I don't think your mom really wants to listen to you perform. A few months later, Robbie stopped coming. He says, I wanted, wanted to call him to find out what happened. But I decided against it. After all, he was bad advertisement for me. You know, if people knew that I was teaching him and he was performing like that, you know, it affects my reputation. So he decided not to. Well, a few weeks later, he sent out a flyer to invite his students to attend a recital. And he unexpectedly got a phone call from Robbie. Robbie said, I, I want to perform. And he says, no, sorry, this is for my students only and you're no longer one of my students. But Robbie ple- pleaded with him. He says, you know, I haven't been coming because my mother is sick, but I've been practicing really hard. And so eventually this Mr. Handoff, the piano teacher, he said, he says, okay, I'll put you, he allowed Robbie to perform. He said, I'll put him as the last item so no matter how bad he does, I can go up and save the situation. 
So they, they arrived. The gym was packed with people. There was a bus in the air, and every student who went out for the recital apparently had practiced well. And then Robbie came up. His hair was uncombed. His clothes were unironed. And I got a bit mad with his mother. I thought if she really wanted to see him perform, can't she even comb his hair or iron his clothes? And then Robbie announced that he was going to play a Mozart Concerto 21. And I was shocked. But I was not prepared for what would happen next because he sat down and his fingers began nimbly running over the keys. He was on point for the rhythm, the crescendos and the decrescendos, and finally he ended with his standing ovation. The teacher said he was overwhelmed with tears. He ran up and hugged Robbie and he asked him, how do you manage to perform so well? And Robbie replied, he said, you know, told you my mother was sick. She has cancer. But I've been practicing hard. This morning, my mother passed away. You know, my mother was born deaf. And so she had never heard me play my piano. And I think tonight she is in heaven. It is the first time she can hear me perform. So I wanted to give my best. And so everyone in attendance that day had teary eyes. Even the social worker who came up to bring Robbie away. And then Mr. Handoff ended his article with this. He says, that night, Robbie taught me a lesson. He was a teacher and I was a student. You see, friends, when we look at people, we look at them like how I looked at Robbie based on their appearances, their abilities, and what they bring to the table. But when Jesus looks at us, He sees that each one of us is precious in His sight. And so if our Lord became poor for us, He looked at us, we were the poor, the despised, the marginalized, but He came down to die for us so that by faith we may have a relationship with God. Then friends, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. And so we ask ourselves the question, how do we respond to those with needs? To give to those who cannot repay just as we can never repay Jesus. Matthew 25, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep to his right and the goats to the left. When the shepherds brought the sheep around, sometimes they get mixed with other animals, other white furry animals like goats. So before they leave, they will separate them by calling out their names, and the sheep will follow the shepherd. And since you separate the animals, the king, the shepherd who is king, will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous, the sheep, will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? When? 
the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. I do not need to explain the text. It is clear for our understanding. Jesus identifies with the marginalized, with those with needs. And he says, when we do it unto those who have needs, we're doing it unto him. And conversely, when we help people in need, we become the hands and feet of Jesus for them. Because people cannot see Jesus, but they can see us as Christians. You know, there was a drunk called Joe. Joe has a reputation. Every time he gets drunk, he just uh, does all the bad stuff. Everyone was afraid of him. But one day, he was saved at the Alcoholic uh, Anonymous Missions. When he was saved, his life was turned around. Became a different man. He sticked around the mission to help out with the odds and ends. He was willing to clean the toilet. Even when the people throw up, he clean the vomit. He would sit with the, those who were drunk and walk with them. It made such an impact in their lives. It made such a difference. One day, the director of the mission was giving an evangelistic message. And he issued an altar call to those who want to receive Jesus. And the people began coming forward and then crying and began praying for them. And one person, one drunk was there just crying out, says, make me like Joe, make me like Joe, make me like Joe. So the director went over to him, knelt beside him and whispered to him. He said, maybe it's better if you say, make me like Jesus. And the drunk looked at this director as bewildered. He said, Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he like Joe? See, friends, the moral of the story is when people in the world around us don't know what Jesus looks like, but they know what Christians look like. They know what we look like. So the question is, how do we represent our Lord? How do we value a person? Based on the abilities? based on what it can benefit me. Scripture tells us that we value others based on the gospel. And the gospel then tells us that the despised, the little people, those who are being uh, overlooked, they are not other people. They, They are us. Every one of us. And that is why we need the gospel. That is how Jesus looks at us and hence, how do we respond? James chapter 2 talks about the marks of spiritual maturity. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As a mature believer, firstly, how do we respond to trials in our life, the challenges of life? Since we think about it, we can rejoice, not because of the trials, but because God is involved. Because what God is about to bring, to, to, to result as a, will bring about as a result of the challenges we face, that we mature in our faith. Hence, don't blame God. Trust Him. Don't be angry. Obey Him. The second mark of maturity is, how do we value people? Do we treat people with partiality? And my challenge to you is to give to those who cannot repay just as we can never repay Jesus. In your life, have you ever invested in somebody that you know cannot repay you? A few weeks ago, I was my old church's uh, retreat. The speaker was speaking on Galatians 6, to bear each other's burdens. You know, after the retreat, usually they end with a testimony time. And so one of the brothers went out to give a testimony. Now this brother is a professor in a university in the US. 
He happened to be back for holidays and he attended the church retreat because that was where he grew up. He says, I need to give a testimony about the speaker, about something he did that nobody else in the world knows except two people, himself and me. Wow, everybody was really excited. He said, oh, what did the speaker do? No terrible things did he do that only two people in the world knows. He says, 20, the brother, he says, 20 years ago, both of us were serving in the youth fellowship of our church. The speaker at the time was the chairperson of the fellowship and I was the treasurer. Every week, we have collection of tithe. At the end, I'll count the money and there's always an envelope at the bottom. A thick envelope with a name on it. And I know the brother who's the name of, whose name is there has financial needs. So I'll give the envelope to him. Sometimes there's no envelope in the bag. The chairperson will hand me the envelope himself and says, it's an anonymous gift to this brother. Just give it to him. Don't tell him who gave him. Every week without fail. And soon I realized that the envelope was given by that chairperson. At that time, he had just graduated, started a new job, was going to get married, and I also know his financial needs. But every week without fail, he gave that envelope that was rather thick. At that time, I was still a college student, and because of his example, I'm encouraged and I learned how to deal with money. So today, 20 years later, when I hear him speak about bearing each other's burdens, the Lord caused me to remind, to remember what happened 20 years ago. I realized that he's not just saying that we should bear each other's burdens, he has been doing it with his life. You know, when the speaker heard it, he teared up. Not externally, but internally. And you say, wow, you're psychic. Huh? How do you know internally he has tears? Well, I know because I was a speaker, okay? I, I know every time I will share with you my struggles and my sins, right? So I think occasionally I need to tell you some good things I do, you know? Otherwise you think, wow, why my senior pastor so emo? Every day angsting and struggling. But do you know why I teared up? It's because I had no recollection of this ever happening. I don't even remember who the brother is. As I was listening, I said, God, man. But it's not important that I remember or not. What's important is that God remembers. And that was why I teared up. At the end of the day, people don't need to know what we do. What matters is God knows. And so I ask you, have you ever invested your life in somebody that can never repay? In every season of my life, I try to do that. Not because I'm very compassionate. I am, but it doesn't come naturally. I do it because it's a reminder to myself that all the resources I have, whether I have a lot when I was in banking or I have little now, you know, as a pastor, it doesn't matter. It's a reminder that the resources don't belong to me. I am not my own. I belong to my Savior. Who do you belong to? Let's pray. Father, you didn't tell us to solve the world's problems. You just tell us to deal with the problem in front of us. We need not be overwhelmed by all the starfish we see on the beach that we try to save and throw in the sea and then, you know, 10 more washes up. What matters is the one that we pick up and throw back. 
We can only say thank you, Lord Jesus. You look at the despised, the marginalized, the little people, which is us. But you came willingly to die for us on the cross. That by faith alone, because of what we trust in what you have done, we are accepted by God the Father. But we know faith alone, faith that saves is not alone. So Lord, I pray that your gospel will grip our hearts. Gospel, that's not something we needed 20, 30 years ago when we came to know you. The gospel message that we need every day of our lives to grip our hearts that truly we lead a gospel-centered life centered upon you, centered upon your kingdom. I want to give each of us some time to respond to the Lord in prayer. Ask the Lord to lead us to somebody that we can invest in to help not because we are superior but because we understand the love of God someone who can never repay you